0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's
1: How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson
0: and I'm Holly Fry.
1: And before we get to our episode, we have a fun announcement, which is that while we are in Chicago for our Chicago stop on our tour, we are going to do a fun thing with Museum Hack. Yes, which I'm so excited. Yes, listeners to our show have have heard about Museum Hack before. We are doing a scavenger hunt at the Art Institute of Chicago. It's going to be at two p.m. on the twenty sixth of October. There is more information about it on our website or on the Museum Hack website. We've been kind of working on this behind the scenes after a while, and just got to the point that we were ready to announce it. <laughs> so, uh, if you are, especially if you are already in Chicago, uh, that's going to be, I think, a fun time for us the day after our live show there.
0: I am very excited because it is no secret that I love a museum, and I love Museum Hack, and I love the way that they get people to engage with art and history, and I'm so enthused about this whole thing. I have the wiggles.
1: Yes, and so often on our tours, we're in a place for so little time that we don't get to have some kind of stop like that, so I'm glad we built that in with this one. Uh, So anyway, our website, MissedInHistory.com. You'll find more information about that, and now... We will get into the actual meat of today's episode, which also was coincidentally about Chicago. Uh, We have at least one more 1919 episode this year. We are right in the middle of the 100th anniversary of the 1919 World Series, and that's the one that led to the Black Sox scandal after some players from the Chicago White Sox, uh, they took a bribe to lose it on purpose. There are some players who confessed to taking this money, but whether some or all of them really played their best after taking the money is hotly debated still. Like, you can go and read some articles that are statistical analyses of various people's, like, batting averages during the season and then what it was like during the World Series and what did that mean about whether they were really trying to lose or not. And we're not talking as much about that today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, because that's one of those things that there are so many factors involved in how— Anyone in any profession, whether you're a professional piano player or a professional athlete or anything, how you perform on any given day is the result of a lot of different factors. So it's almost impossible to break down any sort of definitive yes-no answer (laughs) on whether anyone, like, kind of shrugged it off.
1: Yep, which all that is also part of what happened when this all came to trial. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of discussion about it. So the collective memory about this whole scandal is also really pretty different from how it all played out, especially if your familiarity with it is from stuff like watching Field of Dreams. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, some of it's given this really romanticized air sometime. It's also, I think, imagined... Uh, because of this whole idea of baseball being a wholesome pastime, it's imagined as happening as a more innocent time. But really, this was happening alongside a lot of the other stuff we've talked about from 1919, like Red Summer and the first Red Scare and the Palmer Raids and a lot of widespread labor disputes, including the amalgamated steel strike of 1919, which we haven't actually talked about on the show before. And there's also this imagined version that baseball was more innocent before this happened, but as we we're going to talk about, none of that is really the case at all.
0: So first of all, we're going to lay some groundwork and give you some context. It is a myth that baseball was the invention of one single person. Abner Doubleday, who was a major general in the Union Army during the Civil War, is often credited as having created the sport in Cooperstown, New York in 1839. But he wasn't in Cooperstown at that time. He was at West Point. He also never said that he invented baseball.
1: And apart from all that, baseball existed before 1839 when, according to the story, Abner Doubleday invented it. Variations of it developed in multiple United States cities in the 18th century. They were largely inspired by the English games of rounder and cricket. Uh, there, I mean, there are also other... There are Native American ball games that involve balls and sticks in some way, but they have more in common with like lacrosse and basketball and and baseball really ties back to those English games more. By the middle of the 19th century, baseball was known not as an adaptation of an English game, though, but as an innately American sport and it had also become extremely popular. The New York Mercury described it as the national pastime on December 5th, 1856.
0: The idea that the sport had been Doubleday's creation was intentionally spread by a commission that was established to research baseball's origins in the early 20th century. The commission gave Doubleday the credit in 1908, and by that point, he had been dead for 15 years, so he was not around to set the record
1: straight. Part of the commission's goal in propagating this myth was to reinforce this American origin story for the sport because baseball had taken on a symbolic significance— It had come to be imagined as uniquely embodying American values like loyalty, patriotism, hard work, team play, and sporting behavior, and also community spirit and civic pride as cities and towns became home to their own baseball teams and developed rivalries with their neighbors.
0: In our previous podcast on Walt Whitman, we talked about how Whitman tried to both reflect upon and shape the consciousness of the United States through his writing in the 19th century, and this included baseball. Whitman's biographer, Horace Traubel, recalled a conversation they had in 1889 in which Traubel called baseball, quote, the hurrah game of the republic. And Whitman replied, quote, that's beautiful, the hurrah game. Well, it's our game. That's the chief fact in connection with it, America's game. Has the snap, go, fling of the American atmosphere. Belongs as much to our institutions. Fits into them as significantly as our Constitution's laws is just important in the sum total of our historic life.
1: The idea of baseball was also connected to the assimilation of immigrants into what was regarded as mainstream white American life. In the words of sports writer Hugh Fullerton, quote, baseball, to my way of thinking, is the greatest single force working for Americanization. No other game appeals so much to the foreign-born. Nothing, not even the schools, teaches the American spirit so quickly or inculcates the idea of sportsmanship or fair play as thoroughly.
0: As is clear from a lot of episodes
1: in our archive, the United States has never thoroughly
0: lived up to these ideals that baseball was meant to embody. And the same is true for baseball itself. There was really never an idyllic time when baseball was wholesome, clean, pure, and unencumbered by the same social issues that were affecting the rest of the nation.
1: For example, racial segregation in baseball got its start in 1867, and Major League Baseball was officially segregated 20 years later. Baseball struggled with labor rights issues as well. Today, Major League Baseball salaries range from $550,000 to $35 million a year. But at first, baseball was a strictly amateur sport. Then that meant that only people who could afford not to work could afford to play baseball, although some people were paid in secret, even though it was against the rules. Gradually, though, baseball became a professional sport.
0: The Cincinnati Red Stockings became the first fully professional team in 1869, and the National Association became the first professional baseball league two years later. Baseball became an industry that still presented itself as a national pastime instead of a business, sidestepping the idea that playing baseball for a living was
1: work. And professional baseball did this pretty successfully. In 1922, after most of the events that we're talking about today, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled that Major League Baseball did not violate the Sherman Antitrust Act. Because even though professional baseball involved teams traveling from state to state, which players were paid for their work and spectators were paying to watch, that this did not constitute interstate commerce. While playing professional baseball is work, baseball players
0: didn't have a lot of rights or protections as workers. For example, players often signed contracts with teams that covered a specific number of seasons, but a reserve clause meant that they were still tied to that team, sometimes in perpetuity, until they were formally released, even if they were not actively playing anymore. Often, contracts stipulated that players could be sold or traded to other teams without any say in the matter, and these contracts placed a lot of restrictions on players without giving them much job security. Many included a 10-day release clause, which allowed teams to terminate contracts with little notice and without cause.
1: All these contractual stipulations meant that players didn't have a lot of negotiating power a lot of the time, and they also weren't paid well enough to support themselves after their time as a player was over. Baseball teams didn't have pensions or retirement plans, and a lot of players started playing ball professionally when they were young. They had little to no education or training in other work. So when age or injury or some other circumstance led to the end of their baseball career— they didn't have another way to support themselves, and they were thought of as being too old to not already have a way to earn a living. I'm not saying there are no more labor issues in baseball or any other professional sport, but some of these have improved somewhat since then. And
0: aside from these issues, there was the gambling and corruption. The Black Sox weren't the first players to be banned from baseball, either temporarily or permanently because of gambling. The National Association that we mentioned a few moments ago lasted for less than five years, in part because widespread gambling raised questions about the sport's
1: legitimacy. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it wasn't particularly frowned upon for players to bet on their own games. And it was also common for gamblers to pay players for tips, like insider knowledge about who was recovering from an injury or which players were expected to take the field that day. Basically, any little tidbit of information that might give one better an edge when making wagers. Some gamblers essentially had players on their payroll on an ongoing basis for this purpose. And
0: long before the Black Sox scandal, the influence of gambling on the sport went beyond paying for information and into bribing players to influence the outcome of the game. Paying players to throw a game goes back at least to 1865 when a gambler paid a player for the New York Mutuals to make sure that their opponent won in the next
1: day's game. In 1905, Philadelphia Athletics pitcher Rube Waddell injured his shoulder and missed the end of the season, including the World Series. People raised some suspicions at the time about whether that injury was genuine or not, and then in the aftermath of the Black Sox scandal, Allegations surfaced that he had been paid $17,000 to fake an injury and sit out of the World Series. In
0: 1927, former White Sox shortstop Charles Risberg, known as Swede, told the Chicago Tribune about a string of fixed games during the 1917 season. According to his account, the White Sox and the Detroit Tigers played two doubleheaders that September. The Sox won all four of them, purportedly because the Tigers had been paid to lose them. Risberg also said that in 1919, the White Sox threw three games against the Tigers as a sort of thank you.
1: And these are just examples. So when several players from the Chicago White Sox conspired with gamblers to throw the World Series in exchange for money, this wasn't a plot that just sprang out of nowhere, sullying an otherwise pristine and above-board sport. Basically, this kind of behavior had been going on for so long, essentially unchallenged, that multiple players from the White Sox thought they could fix the World Series and get away with it. We will talk more about it after a sponsor break. The Black Sox scandal followed the end of World War I. The United States had entered the war in April of 1917, and at first, the sport of baseball continued on, with the White Sox winning the World Series that November. But by 1918, things had changed. A lot of players had either volunteered to join the military or had been drafted. In July of that year, Secretary of War Newton D. Baker issued a work-or-fight order, which required men who were eligible for the draft to either join the military or work in an industry that was critical to the war, rather than in non-essential vocations. Baseball wasn't specifically
0: described as non-essential, but it was definitely perceived that way. And baseball players who didn't enlist or go to work in a critical industry faced increasing criticism. Some who did go to work in a critical industry also spent more time playing for the company ball team than working toward the war effort. The major leagues considered suspending games altogether, but instead shortened the season and held the World Series at the start of September rather than later in the fall. The Boston Red Sox defeated the Chicago Cubs four games to two.
1: Germany surrendered in World War I on November 11, 1918. Although the Treaty of Versailles that formally ended the war wasn't signed until the following year. This meant that the war was over in time for the 1919 baseball season to at least in theory get back to normal. Normal, for the
0: White Sox, involved some tensions between players and management. Elliot Asinoff's book, Eight Men Out, which was published in 1963, was the go-to source about the Black Sox scandal for decades. And he made the claim that White Sox owner Charles Comiskey was vastly underpaying his team, and that this grudge led to several players' willingness to participate in this scheme. But really, the White Sox payroll at the start of the season was a little over $88,000, which was more than $10,000 higher than their 1919 World Series opponent, the Cincinnati Reds. Some of the White Sox players were the highest paid in the league for their positions.
1: What the White Sox did have was huge pay disparities, with some of its best players making the smallest amounts of money. Eddie Collins, who played second base, was paid $14,500 a year. But the average salary of the players who were implicated in this conspiracy to throw the World Series were paid more than $10,000 less than that. So money and grievances with Comiskey were surely a factor in all this, but it was a lot more complicated than basically the players being so low paid that they had no choice other than to take this bribe.
0: Some depictions of the Black Sox scandal also make it seem as though the players were hapless rubes drawn in by conniving gangsters. But really, it was the players who first proposed this scheme. Arnold Gandel, known as Chick, who played first base, and pitcher Eddie Cicotte were the instigators of this plot. They reached out to gamblers, including Joseph Sullivan, known as Sport, in September of 1919. Then Gandil and Cicotte recruited other players to help them with the fix.
1: At the time, a White Sox victory was thought of as pretty much a sure thing. The Cincinnati Reds were champions in their league, but the White Sox were considered to be the far superior team. Odds of a White Sox win were set at 5-1, to one, so people who bet that they would lose had the potential for a huge payout.
0: As a surprising number of bets rolled in against the White Sox, some of them surprisingly large rumors started to spread that something fishy was going on. Syndicated sports writer Hugh Fullerton wired a note to all the papers that were printing his work, which read, quote, advise all not to bet on this series. Ugly rumors afloat.
1: Early in game one, Eddie Cicotte was pitching for the White Sox and he hit Reds player, Mari Rath, and that was reportedly a signal to bettors that White Sox players were going to throw the game as agreed. The White Sox did lose that game with a score of 1-9. to
0: Insiders were immediately suspicious. Some of them had
1: heard rumors of a fix in the works
0: before the game had even started. White Sox manager William Kidd Gleason thought the team just had not been playing the way he'd seen them play all season, and that concerned him. He went to Comiskey about it, and Comiskey went to American League president Ban Johnson. But at that point, nothing came of their concerns.
1: The White Sox lost Game 2 as well, but then they won Game 3. In that game, Dickie Kerr was pitching, and he was not in on this conspiracy to throw the series. So it's possible that the conspiring players just were not able to perform badly enough to offset his pitching. But it's also possible that they were trying to send a message to the gamblers because after games one and two, they had not received their promised payouts for throwing the games and they wanted their money. The
0: World Series continued on from there with the Reds winning games four and five and then the White Sox winning games six and seven. Then the Reds won the series with game eight,
1: winning five games to the
0: White Sox's three.
1: I was uh, doing the thing where my husband and I were in the car and I was recapping everything that I had written for this episode yeah, and uh, normally uh, it would end in game seven so I kept naming more games that had been won or lost than he was like how many games were there (laughs) it's gonna be a best of nine suspicions about the White Sox performance had continued all through the World Series Comiskey Gleason and others tied to the White Sox management tried to investigate afterward Comiskey went to McLay Hoyne, who was the state's attorney for Cook County, Illinois, and as Hoyne related it, Comiskey told him that he thought some of his players had jobbed him, in his word. Comiskey asked for help in figuring that out.
0: It was clear that something had happened, and eventually gamblers confirmed to Comiskey that the series had been rigged but he and others in the team's management thought it would be in their best interest to keep things quiet. They even signed new contracts with players who had been part of the
1: scheme, with those players getting raises as part of the deal. Others, though, were not so interested in covering up the fix of the 1919 World Series, Sports journalists saw the same suspicious disparities in how the White Sox had been playing during the World Series versus how they had been playing during the regular season. Hugh Fullerton, in particular, had a notebook full of suspicious plays that he had kept track of during the games. Fullerton published an article in the New York World on December 12, 1919, titled, Big League Baseball Being Run for Gamblers With Ballplayers In on the Deal? The next day, Collier's Eye published an article by
0: Frank O. Klein stating that White Sox catcher Ray Schalk had named several teammates who would not be part of the 1920 season, implying that it was because they had thrown the World Series. The players he named were pitchers Claude Lefty Williams and Eddie Saccott, first baseman Chick Gandil, infielder Fred McMullen, shortstop Charles Swede Risberg, and outfielders Oscar Happy Felsch and Joe Jackson. That's also known as Shoeless Joe.
1: You might think these allegations would have immediately ended the players' careers, but they did not. Most returned to the field during the 1920 season, with many of those same players named in Klein's articles allegedly continuing to fix games. This was to the immense frustration of their teammates who were not in on this fix, who made comments to the press about how the dirty players weren't trying or were actively working against the players who were actually trying to
0: win. In August of 1920, the White Sox were first in the league and seemed poised to win the pennant, but suddenly lost seven games in a row. Three were against the Boston Red Sox, which before that point was in fifth place. And while it is totally possible for a great team to suddenly hit a losing streak, multiple players who weren't implicated in the 1919 fix were convinced that their teammates were once again throwing games. After one of the Boston games, pitcher Dickie Kerr had a heated encounter with Buck Weaver and Swede Risberg, telling them, quote, if you told me you wanted to lose this game, I could have done it a lot easier.
1: But eventually... Even though there had been no consequences before this point, the 1919 World Series fix did lead eight members of the Chicago White Sox to be banned from Major League Baseball for life. We will talk more about that after a sponsor break. In September of 1920, a grand jury investigation in Cook County, Illinois, was looking into allegations of a potentially fixed game between the Chicago Cubs and the Philadelphia Phillies, which had been played the month before. American League President Ban Johnson encouraged presiding judge Charles A. McDonald to include the allegations of a fix in the 1919 World Series to this investigation, and soon, that was the grand jury's primary focus.
0: Grand jury proceedings are generally kept secret in the United States, but in this case, they were not. Newspapers carried reports detailing exactly what was going on, some of which included word-for-word testimony. And as word spread that baseball players were confessing to having taken a bribe to throw the World Series the general public felt deeply betrayed. There was the possibly apocryphal exchange with Joe Jackson outside the courthouse when someone, described as a newsboy, a reporter, or a random child, depending on the version of the story you hear, plaintively said, quote, say it ain't so, Joe. A few years later, F. Scott Fitzgerald included a fictionalized version of Arnold Rothstein, who was believed to have financed this whole scheme in The Great Gatsby. In Gatsby's words, he had played with the faith of 50 million people.
1: On September 28, 1920, eight players were indicted for conspiring to defraud the public and injure the business of Charles Comiskey and the American League. They were the same players who had been named in Collier's Eye back in 1919, along with the addition of George Weaver, known as Buck, who played third base. Weaver maintained his innocence for the rest of his life, saying he had not taken any money and had played his best during the series. Sakat,
0: Williams, Jackson, and Felsh all admitted to the grand jury that they had taken the bribe. Jackson's testimony included that he had been promised $20,000 but had only gotten $5,000. The four confessing players also implicated the others in their testimony, but they didn't admit to actually throwing the game once the bribe had been taken. Lefty Williams also named several gamblers who were involved, some of whom were
1: also indicted. But then the 1920 election disrupted these proceedings with Republicans ousting Democrats in Illinois and much of the rest of the country. The new prosecutors taking over at the Cook County State's Attorney's Office found that the case that they were inheriting from the previous administration needed a lot of work the previous prosecutors had been relying on the players who had confessed to turn state's evidence, so they had not really built much of a case beyond that. But by this point, those players had secured legal representation and they clearly had no intention of testifying against their teammates.
0: As this was happening, former federal judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis was appointed as the first commissioner of baseball. He took office on December 12, 1920, replacing the three-man national commission that had governed Major League Baseball previously. He was appointed to, in the words of National League President John Hadler, quote, rule with an iron hand.
1: Prosecutors hoped to delay the trial to allow them some more time to build a better case than the one that they had inherited, but... In February of 1921, Judge William E. Denver denied a motion to postpone and set a very speedy trial date instead. The state's attorney's office didn't feel like the case was winnable in the time that they had to pull it all together, so state's attorney, Robert E. Crow, dropped all the charges. But then they impaneled a new grand jury, which re-indicted all the original defendants plus five more gamblers. The prosecution had an interesting challenge ahead of it. In Illinois
0: at the time, if two parties planned to commit an unlawful act, that was enough to support a charge of conspiracy. It did not matter whether they had actually carried out their plan, and the unlawful act itself was a different charge. So if two people conspired to kidnap someone, for example, they could still be charged with conspiracy regardless of whether they actually did it. If they did, the kidnapping itself would be
1: considered a separate crime. So that aspect of Illinois law was helpful to the prosecution because like we talked about at the top of the show, it's really difficult to prove that eight players really lost some baseball games on purpose. The ones who had confessed had confessed only to taking the bribe, not to throwing the games. And you can come up with all kinds of reasons to explain somebody's poor performance in a baseball game. But the situation was still complicated because a conspiracy is a plan to commit an unlawful act. And at the time, there wasn't anything unlawful about losing a baseball game on purpose. That's why the indictments were framed as a matter of fraud and injury to the business of the team's owner and the league. But even this was on kind of shaky legal ground. There was another game-fixing case in California that had been thrown out of court when prosecutors tried to make a similar argument.
0: These were not the only challenges that the prosecutors were facing.
1: Hearsay evidence was admissible
0: before the grand jury, but not in a criminal trial, and a lot of the testimony given before the grand jury was hearsay. Also, most of the people involved who weren't ballplayers didn't live in Illinois, and some of them just didn't bother to show up for court. Of the indicted gamblers, the only ones to stand trial were Carl Zork, David
1: Zelser, and Ben and Lou Levy. I read various amusing accounts of when you have someone who is a criminal who lives somewhere else and you want them to come to court in another state. They had some challenges (laughs) trying to make that happen. In the end, the prosecutor's star witness was Bill Burns, also known as Sleepy Bill, who was a former Major League pitcher who had gone into the oil business. He and Billy Maharg had served as go-betweens between the players and the gangsters who were financing this whole scheme. The most famous of these financiers was Arnold Rothstein, who we mentioned earlier, but he was not indicted or tried in connection to this plot. A lot of people think he was, like, the major source of money for all this. Not a thing that was conclusively proven.
0: The trial started in June of 1921, before a jury of white men who all said they were not baseball fans. And in the end, after deliberating for less than three hours and taking one vote— They found all the defendants not guilty on all counts."
1: There are a lot of accounts that say that this was because all of the evidence was stolen ahead of the trial so that there was nothing to go on. And the original transcriptions of the grand jury testimony were stolen, but these were transcriptions that had been made from shorthand notes that were kept during the proceedings. Those notes still existed, so they were just retranscribed for the trial. Nobody seemed to have any doubt about whether the second round of transcriptions was accurate or valid. The defense did not raise any questions about whether they were as part of their defense.
0: The prosecution was shocked at this outcome, and so were a lot of other people. There's been a lot of speculation into why the jury reached the verdict that they did. After all, four of the players had confessed to taking the bribe, and Bill Burns and Billy Maharg had made confessions on the gambler's side. Those confessions were read at the trial. However, because hearsay evidence wasn't admissible, the transcripts had to be edited to remove references to things that other people had said. Those names were all replaced with Mr. Blank. And this rendered the transcribed testimony both confusing and, frankly, boring.
1: The case against the players also rested on the idea that their actions in the 1919 World Series had harmed the business of Charles Comiskey and of their league, but... White Sox club secretary Harry Grabener testified that the team's revenues had actually gone up in 1920.
0: It's possible that the mostly blue-collar jury sympathized with the mostly blue-collar players. Joe Jackson, for example, didn't know how to read or write, and he started working in a
1: textile mill in his early teens. There's also been some speculation that this was a case of jury nullification, which is basically when a jury returns a not guilty verdict in spite of believing the defendant to be guilty because they believe that the law was unjust or immoral or otherwise to send some kind of moral or emotional message about the case. But also in the words of one anonymous juror, quote, we thought the state presented a weak case. It was dependent on Bill Burns and Burns did not make a favorable impression on us.
0: But Major League Baseball and the White Sox specifically didn't really care that they had been found not guilty. Comiskey suspended seven of the players indefinitely after the verdicts were read. Eddie Saccat had already been suspended over a pay dispute.
1: And then Kennesaw Mountain Landis banned all eight men from Major League Baseball for life. In his words, quote, regardless of the verdict of juries, no player that throws a ball game, no player that entertains, proposes, or promises to throw a game, no player that sits in conference with a bunch of crooked players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing games are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it will ever play professional baseball. This last bit uh,
0: that Tracy just read was his reason for denying Buck Weaver's repeated requests to be reinstated. Although Weaver maintained that he had taken no money and had played fairly, he had known about the fix, and he hadn't spoken up.
1: Landis's lifetime ban of the players circled back around to that idea of baseball as something that was uniquely important to American culture. And Landis's words, quote, "...baseball is something more than a game to an American boy." It is his training field for life work. Destroy his faith in its squareness and honesty, and you have destroyed something more. You have planted suspicion of all things in his heart, which to me means this was as much about protecting the sport of baseball as it was to protecting men's feelings. (laughs)
0: This same sentiment was echoed in other writing as well. As printed in the St. Louis Globe Democrat, quote, if Judge Landis can keep the game of baseball on a high plane of sports ethics, he will do far more for the boys of America than he has ever done or can ever do on the federal bench. Nor could he do more for the country as a whole because the standard of integrity of the boy becomes also his standard as a citizen.
1: Meanwhile, much of the news coverage of the scandal and the trial and its aftermath tried to place the blame on this for outsiders, specifically Jewish people and immigrants. This once again reinforced the idea that baseball was, in quotation marks, pure, or at least it would have been if not for this outsider influence.
0: After their lifetime ban from the sport, several of the eight players tried to clear their names or filed civil suits, many of them claiming that they were owed back pay under the terms of their contracts with the White Sox. This included Joe Jackson, whose case came to trial in Milwaukee in 1924. During the trial, he repeatedly denied that he had given the grand jury testimony that he was on record as having given.
1: In spite of that, I mean, just saying over and over, I didn't say that in front of the grand jury, even though it's right there in the transcript. Uh, The jury found in his favor. They awarded him more than $16,000, and the foreman later explained that this was because White Sox management had known about the fixing scheme when it signed the contract with him. Therefore, it had no grounds to back out of the deal over it later. The judge, though, was outraged at this ruling and vacated the settlement and charged Jackson with perjury. Of the civil suits that were filed, Jackson's was the only one that went to trial.
0: In addition to the eight Black Sox, over the next few years, Kennesaw Mountain Landis banned another 10 players for life because of their involvement in gambling. He also banned William D. Cox, president of
1: the Philadelphia Phillies. Then in 1927, Landis proposed the addition of rules prohibiting gambling to the formal rulebook of Major League Baseball. Today, this Rule 21 is required to be posted in every clubhouse. It prohibits various types of misconduct, including gambling. Under this rule, players, umpires, club, and league officials and other employees are ineligible for one year if they bet on a baseball game that they don't have a duty to perform in. If they bet on a game that they do have a duty to perform in, they are ineligible for life.
0: These and other efforts did not restore baseball to a pristine heyday because that had never really existed. But Landis' efforts reinforced the idea that there had been, and ultimately, they made the sport more respectable, at least for a time.
1: Yeah, one of the articles that I read as I was working on this was from ESPN, and the author talked about how uh, the editor had said, I, I want you to write um, an article that's about like the major moments in baseball gambling scandals. And the writer was like, Well, there's a kind of a problem with that. It's basically two broad periods. There's the first broad period, which is just a cesspool of greed and corruption. And then decades pass and it's Pete Rose. And it's like, <laughs> that's all you have to go on there. Uh, anyway. We've had various folks ask us to talk about this over the years, um, and it is just a wacky story to me. Uh, I have so many favorite moments, including shoeless Joe Jackson being angry that he did not get his whole bribe. <laughs> yeah, mine is like, I, I never said that. <laughs> Dude, yes, you did.
0: <laughs> it's
1: right there. They transcribed it. Uh, what you got uh, next, Miss Tracy? Well, um, I, I was out on vacation for a while, and I'm still sort of catching up with the email inbox. So in lieu of listener mail today, I want to talk about something we have not talked about for a while, which is that we have a t-shirt store for our show. And a lot of the stuff that we have in the store are things that people said they wished we had t-shirts of, but in some cases, we've never told anyone we actually have that t-shirt now. (laughs) (laughs) So you can find a link to the store from our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stuff you missed in history class. That's all one word, all spelled out. Some of the shirts that people have said they wished that we had, that we do have now. Uh, One of them is a shirt for everybody who has listened to every episode of the show ever. And that one says, I have a PhD in SYMHC, which I find delightful. Uh, after our History of Donuts episode, somebody said that we they wanted a shirt uh, about how um, we read a thing w- that was about Crullers being outlaw cakes. So we have a Cruller t-shirt that says outlaw cakes on it. We also have the much requested Lunar Beavers shirt, which looks like it's patterned after a band's tour shirt. Um, and then going, <laughs> going all the way back. To uh, to when we did the uh the Virginia APGAR episode, we have a look at the baby's shirt. Those are just examples, and then you can also get these things on stickers and mugs, etc. Uh, and we so rarely mention that we have a store, but we do. We do. Since I've uh, I still I came back to to work and I was like, I've got so much that I need to catch up on, and I just kept looking at the listener mail inbox. It's like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to the listener mail. Um, but take a minute, talk about our store. So. We do love getting listener mail. We love to hear from folks. Um, If you are uh, about to write and tell us about somebody's RBIs from this um, sporting scandal, I I probably read that article. We just (laughs) did not spend as much time focused on that in this episode. But... If you want to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're a history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Mist in History. And that's where you'll find our Facebook and Pinterest and Instagram and Twitter. And you can find our website at History.com, And it currently has a link up in the menu to our store. So you can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else that you get podcasts.